Welcome back to Behind the Screens. I'm Ryan Proventure from Movio. I'm Matthew Liebman from Vista Group. Um, Ryan, we got rid of one Simon. We didn't have a, a second Simon waiting in the wings the way that Disney have with their bobs. So uh, we might have to try and get our Simon back. Uh, he can be he can be the equivalent of Biger who um, disappears for a week and then comes back. I hope it works as I hope it works well on both sides. We have our Simon back. They've got their Bob back. Yeah, well, fingers crossed. At least we've got somebody who. Um, hasn't been on the record as saying animated movies are only for kids and, and who was genuinely passionate about the creative process. I guess on the flip side, he was on the record recently on a, um, a stage with Kara Swisher uh, saying he isn't 100% confident about how much cinemas will bounce back. Um, and I guess if we're bouncing back and forward and arguing amongst ourselves, the flip side to all of that is he was the one who kicked off Disney+. Plus. At the same time, the market is now punishing people for pursuing subscribers at, at loss-making rates. So all of this is to say, I have no idea. How about you? I think we're going to see. We're just going to see what happens. You know, hopefully, people are going to get more and more comfortable with the theatrical experience coming back. And 2023 really looks like it. And hopefully, Dis Disney will probably be on the forefront of that. So let's cross our fingers that they're going to want to keep those going and getting the butts in the seats for hopefully a really big year next year yeah well why don't we uh we segue from disney and its executives into disney's international release at the moment black panther wakanda forever uh we don't need it to be forever we need it to be a few more weeks until avatar 2 comes out i see tickets have just gone on sale so we'll start tracking some pre-sales and audiences in the weeks to come but wakanda added uh, 69.8 million dollars internationally from 51 territories that brings its international cum to 258 mil. It's uh, crossed the half a billion dollar mark worldwide. It's $546 million. That makes it the eighth highest Hollywood release of this year overseas. And then globally, adding the domestic market to it, it sits at number seven. And it's helped Disney cross the $3 billion mark in global box office receipts with Avatar and Strange World to come amongst others. Uh, if we look a little more uh, deeply into Black Panther, um, in weekend two, the international market uh, achieved a 49% drop, which is incredibly strong. Uh, we'll look at that in a second compared to the domestic market. It's uh, bested Thor, Love and Thunder, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, uh, both which were 56% uh, drop-offs internationally in their uh, second weekend. And Spider-Man, which of course had a much bigger gross, uh, but still dropped by 60%. Uh, we're seeing uh, that there are strongholds in, in Germany, the Netherlands. Uh, they were only down by 31%. UK was 48%. Australia was up there in terms of best holds. Uh, it dropped only 39%. And uh, we're seeing that IMAX is continuing to be a powerhouse. It's generated uh, $34.9 million in global uh, box office contribution to Black Panther. So that's our top title. Um, there are a couple of other releases. The Menu, which we'll talk about in the domestic market, another Disney film through its Fox pedigree, generated uh, $15.2 million. Uh, 6.2 million of those came internationally from 37 territories. Uh, and then Black Adam is holding uh, solidly. It, it's generated another $5.1 million, three days internationally, 9.6 million globally. Look, I think that's really all we want to dump, jump into on the international side. Let me pivot from our Black Panther 
uh, Wakanda Forever internationals to the domestic market. It added another $67.3 million. It's now at a cum of $288 million. The drop in the domestic market was significantly higher than what it was globally. It was 62.9% off uh, from one week to the next, but still compared favorably to Thor, Love and Thunder and Doctor Strange, which were both at the 67% mark. It's a long way uh, behind what the hold was for the original Black Panther. That one only dropped 44%, but that was anomalous. That was a remarkable result. Right, I know we were talking about the audience for Black Panther. Why don't you talk about what variants or, or variants you didn't see from Weekend 1 to 2? There really wasn't much of a variance. The audience stayed pretty much the same as, as you would, ex would expect for a second weekend. But the fact is, a 67% drop is, is quite good when you, when you have opening large. You know, you sometimes are going to expect even in the 70%. So the audience remained virtually the same. And I think it's going to carry in really well into Thanksgiving. We're going to, I, I think you'll see, I'd like to think that you're going to see quite a bit of a smaller drop, even though there's a lot of competition out there. Yeah, maybe uh, reinforcing the fact that that audience didn't evolve that much, or certainly you could look at the drop off from the first film to the second film. I think the first film rightly or wrongly, had to prove itself. It was, again, an instance of Marvel pushing the boundaries in its storytelling and its diversity, in a good way, I should add, but still pushing the boundaries. And so it needed that word of mouth, and thus the hold was so amazing. This one, everyone knew what it was. Everyone was looking forward to it, and it's more of a traditional drop-off because it didn't get that morphing audience from week one to, to week two. Exactly. So the number two title um, was The Menu. It's a Disney title, but via Searchlight. It grossed $9 million from 3,211 screens. That was a per screen of $2,802. Not a bad result when you consider its estimated budget was somewhere in that $30 to $35 million mark. Uh, apparently, it was the widest release in the history of Searchlight. It got a solid B cinema score. Uh, it's a bit disproportionate in the reviewers to the, um, the audience on Rotten Tomatoes, but not the worst we've seen by a long way. The reviewers scored it at 90%. The audience had it sitting at 79%, so a little disparity, but not terrible. Let's pivot from reviewers to those who really count, though. Ryan, what does the audience look like? Well, the audience was sort of interesting when we when we created our comps here. I think Don't Worry Darlings does make some sense there, but there were some horror, horror films here with Pray for the Devil, Barbarian, Pearl. Uh, then you had Amsterdam in there with the older audience, Bodies, 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 Smile in the Invitation. How I looked at it was really looking at Don't Worry Darlings, uh, which I think is probably the best comparison of these comps. And when you look at the audience that went out, uh, the infrequence was 16% for the menu and 25% for Don't Worry Darlings. So it was the occasional infrequence that, that changed it a little bit. Occasional was 25% to 33% for Don't Worry Darlings, but the frequents were 47% to 37%. So what are we saying? What's that, what all of those numbers kind of saying, right? That's what we need to figure out here, is that people who have been going to the cinema quite often wanted to see the menu. And this is kind of one of those movies that went wide, but is sort of an art house film. So it's, it's playing all these different roles all at once. And it, it shows that these people were coming out, but the number that really shows is the very frequents were 12% to 5%. So people are really going to the cinema very, very often. They're going you know, virtually every week 
were going to see this film much more than went, the ones that went to see Don't Worry Darlings. The age range was actually pretty close to the same, which is interesting. I, I would have thought this would have been a little bit of an older audience, but it's sticking with some of the same age as Don't Worry Darlings. And, uh, but it had a less of a female audience, um, as, you would, as you might expect with the Harry Styles audience for Don't Worry Darlings, it was 40 to 58%. But you know what? A movie that's kind of odd like this that mixes a lot of genres around, it's funny, it's scary, it's a thriller, it's, it's a drama. The fact that it could generate $9 million at the box office is, is a good showing. Yeah, and, and it's got a cast that in some ways lends it more the prestige side with Anya Taylor-Joy, Ray Fine, uh, and Nicholas Holt. And yet it's pulling, a, um, in some instances, a traditional uh, horror crowd. It's, um, it's interesting. There's something for everyone on the menu. There is. <laughs> okay, now I'm going to get angry because um, she said grossed just $2.2 million from 2022 screens in the US. It's um, uh, dead on arrival. I saw it. And the fact that the public is not supporting this film is the reason we can't have nice things. Um, I went to what was fortunately a two-thirds full auditorium in Auckland at the equivalent of a landmark theatre. Um, I took my 17-year-old son, who I knew would like it, but my 14-year-old daughter, who you know up until now has been at Marvel films and more mainstream-style Hollywood films, I brought her along because I thought it was an important story for her to see. And the acting was terrific. All three of us thoroughly enjoyed it, especially my 14-year-old daughter. Um, and this whole talk of is it too bleak, is it too serious, is it too in the weeds for Hollywood is, is completely wrong. Now, maybe that's the perception and perception is reality. But for me, this was a great investigative journalist story. It was a great ride, really well acted. And for the love of God, public, you need to support movies like this. They do. And I think the only hope that we can kind of gather from this is if the, foo if the, if the film gets um, gets a little bit of traction with some nominations. It might see a little bit of a comeback in the weeks to come. You know, if it if it had opened at six million, you'd, you'd kind of hope for more of a chance, which was the higher end of the estimates. This is honestly half of what the lowest estimate was. That's not a, that's not a great sign. But you know, sometimes these movies can leg out pretty well, and and the hope is that maybe between now and and when Avatar comes out, they'll be able to find it somewhat of an audience. Uh, it would be just nice if, if people go out and support this film. But if, let's, look at, let's look at some of the comps here. We have Armageddon Time, which you can imagine makes sense. The Menu, Amsterdam, Don't Worry Darlings, See How They Run, Tar, and Where the Crawdads Sing. We actually looked at Where the Crawdads Sing for this one. And looking at the comparisons, the infrequence were... were quite a bit less in this one. It was 17% to 42% for Where the Crawdads Sing. That might've been because that was based on a book as opposed to this being based on an investigative report. The occasionals was 27% for she said to 27% to 35% for Where the Crawdads Sing. So again, a little bit of a discrepancy there, but again, it's the frequency that we're coming out more. The people who are, who are going to the cinema a little more often than the rest at 42% for she said compared to 21% for where the crawdads sing. So hopefully it's seeing, even in the movies that aren't doing a ton of business, you're still seeing 
people who are going to the movies a lot seeing these films. What was interesting is a number of people went to this by themselves. They did This wasn't necessarily a couple film, which was 50% for, she said, compared to 27% for Where the Crawdads Sing. So there might've been just some people that said, you know, I'm gonna, this is important. I'm gonna go see it by myself. The age range was about the same and gender, I was a little surprised. I thought the gender was going to be higher on a little bit higher on females. It was 52% compared to 64%. I thought they'd be virtually kind of closer to the same because these are both female. A lot of it is female driven in she said, and certainly is where the crawdads sing, but it gives you an idea that maybe you want to try to get some of those occasional and infrequent people to see a movie like this, try to get them to come out and say, Hey, this is an important film. Maybe that's the way they, maybe targeted campaigns out to their audiences and say, you know, find those audiences, find those right people and say, this is the important movie to see right now. It's got a great cast. It's got good reviews and, and it's got a good audience score. So an a, a cinema score, that's a reason to go see it. Yeah. And maybe to round that message out, I mean, I guess um, we learned a little bit from bros that if you say something's important, it feels like vegetables over dessert. Now, the subject matter is in no way trivial and they don't trivialize it, but it was an entertaining film. I mean, it felt like a thriller. You know, there's been a lot of talk about whether movie stars still uh, play a role or not. And, you know, as you were reviewing this, I, I called up the post. Now, the post platformed for a couple of weeks. But when it went wide, when it hit 2,800 screens, that weekend it earned $19.4 million. And it had already earned about $4 million through a platforming strategy. So, you know, 2.2 mil versus 19.4 mil. Now, I'm going to make a bit of a subjective call here. I would say the Pentagon Papers are a hell of a lot drier than what this was. So the subject matter, both around newspapers, one was particularly dry and the other one a little more, um, I guess, current, contemporary and so on. But one had Meryl Streep, Tom Hanks, directed by Steven Spielberg. I wonder if that's the Delta. And I wonder for an older skewing film, if they're the, the movie stars that pull people out. And that's what this was lacking. Um, I can't say that's hypothesis. All I know is that, you know, if we can't get the public to support these outstanding movies when somebody makes them, they're not going to show up in cinemas. And that whole supply chain issue we've talked about persists and we become a tentpole industry only. Yeah, and I, I think we've seen a little about that with a bunch of movies, whether it be Tar or Till or The Banshees of Inishirin. I mean, we're just not seeing strong grosses on some of these uh, that we were hoping. And and maybe those will begin to, to build as, as time goes by. But, you know, as you said, we can't have nice things if people don't go see them. So people no. need to... And I know we're, we're talking in an echo chamber here. I know we're, we're all the ones who um, support the nice things. We just need to tell our uncles and aunts and cousins to, to get off the couch and see them too. Here's a topic for Thanksgiving. There you go. Tell your, tell your relatives to go see movies on Thanksgiving. Yeah, there you go. It, it gets politics and religion off the table. Exactly. Speaking of religion, there was a, um, a special release, a Fathom release this weekend, The Chosen. And uh, now um, it is um, a series that, that can be accessed on Amazon Prime Video and via the Peacock platform. This was the launch of season three, and it did pretty well. It grossed $8.2 million from 2,027 screens. That's a per screen of $4,055. Um, Ryan, who went and saw The Chosen? Who were The Chosen ones? When we looked at it, the, 
the comps were really these these comps were exactly what you'd expect christmas with the chosen which came out last year uh which was the last season of it paul apostle of christ i can only imagine overcomer unplanned risen war room in the case for christ and we we comped the one the the previous chosen one because that seemed to make the most sense now what we saw was that because that movie came out during much more of the pandemic 70 percent of the audience for the christmas one was uh 70 of the audience was infrequent compared to 57 percent for this year's one and occasionals was higher uh, with this year's at 28 percent to 17 and frequents were a little bit higher, 13 to 10%. So as you could, as, as we've seen kind of with a number of these movies, it's the people who have been kind of coming back to cinemas are seeing these movies. The age and gender demographics, as you can expect in this, are not gonna really change. The people who are coming to these movies are coming to these movies. These are the ones they see in theaters. This is just a really good number. It's, it's, it's I think one thing to point out here is that is that these Fathom events and these special events, as they increasingly do well, that's just another place for movie theaters to make money and for customers who maybe don't always come out to the theaters to see that experience, hopefully enjoy the experience and want to see something else. Yeah, the thing that blows me away about Fathom, and I guess Trafalgar as well, is that they're kind of short order cooks in a diner. The amount of movies they have or the number of movies they have to market and release each year compared to a studio they just churn and burn and yet they get the results and this is just the latest example of, of that uh, from those guys absolutely so right let's go to part two of my interview with steve nibs who's the md and deputy ceo of view for those who didn't get part one you can access that via our website via spotify and apple podcasts and uh, i would really recommend hearing that before you jump into part two Steve uh, continues to share his insights on the industry with a particular focus on their circuit in Europe. You were mentioning earlier on that one of the advantages of digital is you have um, a huge library of films on tap that you can really tailor the programming. And you were mentioning in Cine Europe that you um, have in a lot of your six to eight plexes regularly showing 50% more films than other theatres and that you target that really carefully. So I'm assuming there's there's a data aspect to that because the, the catalogue's almost infinite now. How are you relying on data to help inform those decisions and really work that long tail? So Tanya, I looked at the other day at for an, another, another question that somebody asked actually, and we started our AI process on film scheduling in 2012. So we've been at it now. 10 years and we um, contracted with a third party company called Opera Solutions who did stuff on the New York Stock Exchange and they did hotel and airline you know, programming and stuff like that. And we spent basically four years um, designing and putting together algorithms that used data from Vista systems um, that had all those millions of shows and individual tickets we could go back and, and the system essentially works out based on real data and real usage what's the best time for a show um, and it moved us from a world where something would start say at quarter hour increments to five minute increments because we noticed there was a difference between five past and five two for example so the world got more granular and it's a bit like so the journey that multiplexes cinemas are on i i when i when i first started um, and the, in the film booking team, 
the, you had a, a big A3 sheet of paper. You had your 10 screens on or eight screens or whatever it was. You had a rubber and you had a pencil and you would write things in and then you would have a conversation with the distributor and you'd rub it out and put it in another screen. And generally you would book something in for a week. You might have something early in the morning or, a, or something late in the evening, but that was kind of it. We then evolved and put these things onto spreadsheets, which made it a bit easier to move things around. But you're still relying on the experience of the human person doing that. And, and that person brings all of their prejudices and experience and you know, all the things that they think a, a schedule should look like. And we moved all of that now to AI, basically, which looks at the data, the real data of customers, what they watched at what time, and what worked best. And it moves um, films around. So it, it looks at the 10 screens or eight screens or six screens um, as, as a total puzzle. And it can find gaps and find things and move things around to a different order time to so we, with a five-minute clean time so that we get we essentially get a lot more shows in of people. We don't we don't have a lot of gaps in our schedule. Um, and also we started doing years ago as well, using that system. Um, not everything has to play for a full week. You could play something on a let's say a you know a, a drama and it um, it doesn't need to play it you know, peak time at eight o'clock all through the weekend. It will do well at 7.30 on a Wednesday night and then it's on a Friday afternoon and maybe a Sunday afternoon or something. And that use of dotting things in, knowing when your audience is going to be available for it, again, based on data, um, has allowed us just to be a lot more thorough, I think, and um, scientific um, about what we play at what times in, and making sure that the, again, it's down to your forecasting, which is a human element, um, or partly a human element, you're only as good as your forecast about how things will work. Um, in in the Once we've got the first weekend's data, we can then forecast it pretty accurately what it's going to be afterwards. So the only forecasting you really need to do is an opening firm on the first weekend. After that, it then becomes um, more driven by the algorithms. Um, so it, it's worked amazingly for us. We're just rolling that out now to our other territories. Um, uh, we got stopped by the pandemic just from doing the project otherwise we'd be kind of another two years ahead of where we are right now but Italy will come online um, next year and then Poland and then Germany and the Netherlands so we're well on the way to being joined up kind of everywhere really with our programming yeah that's amazing um as somebody who who actually transitioned an exhibitor from the rubber and pencil into the spreadsheets as a kid in one of my first jobs I'm envious of it's that. amazing that. yeah do you know one thing I regret is I wish I had kept some of those sheets from, <laughs> and I'd, I'd frame them and they, they would be historical artifacts now. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and, and and there may well be people who are listening to this who go, actually, I'm still doing it that way, and uh, it was a bit of an art form actually. It really was, and um, yeah, those were fun and interesting times. You could have more arguments on a Monday about that than any other subject. It was. I was a kid and I got yelled at from 7 a.m. to about 6 p.m. every Monday with everyone having different views. Of yeah. course. Yeah. Just screaming matches, yeah. total screaming uh -huh. matches. It was, yeah. What, and purely what, emotional, what very little to do with box office. Yeah the, yeah, the content, the um, yeah. or the film bookers' offices on a Monday morning was like stepping into a version of hell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I learned to speak like um, a Tarantino actor uh, during my time <laughs> as a film booker. Totally. So. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad we can laugh about it now. <laughs> yeah, now I can. Now I can. It took 20 years. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you've talked a bit about the pandemics and some of the shifts. 
have you seen a change in the guest profile? You know, are they spending more concessions? Are they likely to upgrade to, to some of the more um, premium experiences? Um, forgive me for using that term, but you know, the, the more luxury experiences, are they coming more or less frequently? What are you seeing? We're seeing, so in terms of frequency, we've seen the people that are the heavy users are pretty much back to pre-pandemic levels. Um, and we can see that through our data and through the research, both what the industry does, but also our own data. Um, the people that are still missing are the infrequence. And I think one of the challenges, um, everybody talks about getting back to pre-pandemic levels. And in a normal cycle of business, you're always going to, you always had people who would drop out, um, who would leave, you know, for personal, you know, people have families, people's lives change, that they move all of those things. So you always lost people, but you were always filling the hopper up with new people. Now, whether that's um, young families who are coming for the first time and they're getting into the habit, we had two, two and a half years where a lot of you know kids, just very young kids, just haven't gone into the habit yet. And families, it's not been part of their you know, to-do list. And we haven't filled up with other parts of the community that, oh yeah, actually I haven't been to, I'll, I'll go and try it. I haven't been for years or never been. And we had, so they have, but they have those opportunities during lockdown were were limited, and people never got into the habit. Um, and I think we underestimate habit actually, which is why this period we're in right now, where there hasn't really been any product since the middle of the summer up until the opening of um, Wakanda Forever this weekend, this week. Um, that's really that's damaging because people get all excited, they start going back, and they see a lot of stuff in the early summer. And then there's literally there's not enough. There's, there is stuff, but there's not enough for them. There's not enough choice and variety, particularly of the high profile things that get on the front pages and get into people's psyche. Um, so you interrupt that and you've got then got to start again. Um, so I think we need to, as an industry, think about feeding, you know, filling up the hopper. I think actually and get people back into the habit. That's where I think actually cinema days can be a good thing. I'm not generally a fan of them. I think they're a pretty crude kind of marketing tool, but um, they do have their place actually. Um, and um, we've seen them work and get get stimulus. It gets it onto you know people's news feeds in local markets. You see it on the newspaper, um, on on, the, um, on people's local news. And start talking about cinema, so it, it ticks that box and is good. I think can help stimulate. But again, it's only as good as then what what then follows and how good a job do you do with your trailering and contacting people once they've they've been for the cinema day so i think there needs to be follow-up to it i actually I, i'm more of a fan actually of doing like a theme i would have for this cinema going we've got because we're trying to get 3d going again and that's um, that's why i think avatar was a good idea to get that in and so people come and see it in 3d and even in places where 3d's been low such as poland and italy historically it did really well there as well so we're very upbeat about avatar too but um, so I, I think we've, we've seen the major audiences have come. I think those are probably all back now. And um, it, it's the it's the people who are the less inf the less frequent um, cinema goers. That's where the toughest challenge. And I think having this regular supply of, of content is absolutely critical to uh, achieving that. And tied in with that as well is um, um, is pricing as well which is we do see people choosing there is a we're living through a, a, a cost of living um you know a period at the moment of extreme challenge for people and it's going to get worse over this winter as people energy energy bills really start to impact 
um, and interest rates are driving up people's property costs as well. So we've got to take all of that into account. Um, we can't, as an industry, take all of the inflationary costs. We are going to have to pass some of it on to consumers. And one of the things that we learned over many years of of, in, of, in, of years and years of increase of increasing prices above inflation year after year after year, there's a drip, drip, drip effect, and eventually that that frog in the water has been boiled, and you get to that point where people just go, "Hang on a minute, that's really expensive." So we we reset our prices, we we cut our prices, we grew admissions levels, and got cinema going back again um, across most of our estate. Um, and our lesson was you need to you need to be able to cater to people's pockets at and different places on the value chain. There are definitely audiences and people who will pay the pay a premium, um, will pay more for a different experience, whether that's a large format whether it's a moving seat and a 4DX type thing, or whether that is a VIP or a recliner, there are definitely audiences for that. But there are also audiences as well who um, don't want to and can't afford to pay um, those kind of levels. Um, and we shouldn't be switching those people off. And we need to have creative pricing um, that allows for all of that to happen, I think. Um, yeah, and I we couldn't agree with you more. On that, yeah. Yeah. So... Um... Up until recently, I guess there's been almost a one-way flow of movies going from theatrical to streaming. And part of that was understandable with COVID. Some of it was a little bit extreme, you might say. And Steven Spielberg was talking just this week about some of his um, his filmmaker friends having their films thrown under a bus and going onto streaming platforms. But just recently we've seen, you know, Magic Mike has, has gone the other way. It was going to be made for HBO Max. It's going theatrical. Armor Wars was going to be an eight or ten part Disney series. It's going to be theatrical. And now you, along with some other exhibitors, will be playing Netflix's sequel to Knives Out in cinema for one week at the end of this month uh, before a 30-day window or so before it hits Netflix. You know, thinking Netflix specifically, how significant is this? Should we read more into it than just a one-off? Or, um, or is there something, you know, bigger at play? I think um, I'll, I'll, I'll answer the first bit first and then to that, which is, I think there's a there's a journey that everybody's everybody's been on, um, and because I'm a cinema exhibitor, I have always said, um, and we uh, we we the community of cinema exhibitors would say exactly this, which is it goes back to the very first thing we were talking about. Cinema is and always was and always will be the best place to watch a film. That is the gold standard, and I think um, this journey with streaming and how that fits into the. Um, economic life cycle of a film as uh, you know to maximize its return for everybody involved and get the largest audience and the largest revenue for everybody which is that's what we we generally are, you know are here to do um, people have realized that if you launch something in um, on a cinema screen with a proper campaign and support it and back it um, it will have it will feature in people's minds and in their life experiences far more than if it's on the third fold of a of a streaming service and i think there is a recognition of that i think um if you read you know david vaslav's um you know comments even this week actually he came out very very strongly about um you know, no no successful film has ever been launched on a on hbo max is what he essentially said um it needs to go the you know cinemas first and i think the decisions he's taken are bold and really exciting for the future the only issue for us as exhibitors we're going to have to wait for all of that stuff that they're now green lighting which goes back to one of my earlier points 
about we need an increasing pipeline. Um, so I, I do think there's been a whole cycle and journey that, that studios and filmmakers um, and distributors have been on to get to that point where I think everybody believes cinema plays an important role. And we're not talking about Windows anymore. That's settled. Um, I think we're all comfortable with where we are so we can look to the future. So I, I think that's that's all really good news. And I think the Netflix um, uh, Glass Onion thing is, you know, is, is part of of that um, that story as well and the journey that Netflix are on. I don't know whether this will turn into something more permanent. I'm pleased they're doing it. Um, the only thing I'm a, a little bit concerned about is how it's being kind of supported. I think we're obviously promoting it on uh, in the three territories that we're doing it. It's it's on our website and you can see it and everything. But there's a limit to what we can do. We need whoever's providing the content to back it and support it as well. And I do think you know Netflix are kind of they're not sure whether to stick or or twist at the moment. I think um, I think this will do okay. It's on for a week. It, it will do fine, but it's not the final answer, I don't think. Um, I'm really pleased they're doing it. We've all been trying to get engagement with Netflix because um, they have content, I think, that would do well on theatrical release and would ultimately help them as well. Help them, um, and yeah. this And this is, you know, audiences want content. They want new things. And if Netflix are spending, you know, millions and billions on production, then let's let's try and get it to the widest audience to help the filmmakers and to help exhibition and to help themselves as well. So I, I see it as part of a, a process and we'll see where we get to. There's lots of conversations going on with lots of new, whether they're streaming services or whether they're new producers and distributors coming into the marketplace, you're getting that churn and that re, you know, that um, the forest has been burnt and you can start to see the, you know, the coming through from new places um, and I think that's really exciting um, because and, and at its essence cinema we you can't repeat this enough cinema is the best place to show a film both from an audience point of view but also from an economic point of view as well um, and I just think we need to keep saying that and keep saying it and keep saying it and people will listen and again the good news is is that when you look at the average takings of films in 22 compared to the 2017 to 19 period. Um, there's some great results out there. Um, and it's the quantity that we're missing at the moment, not that when you get released. And that's small films as well. They're, they're, we, we can see, the if you look at the average gross um, in all of our markets, they're, they're pretty comparable um, to what they were pre-pandemic. And that's whilst we're still, because again, 2022 is not a normal year it's a recovery year. Um, I think because of what happened at the beginning of the year with the Omicron variant, we're a year behind where we thought we would be this time, you know, a year and 12 months ago. We've lost a year in that recovery. And I'm hoping that... Now, that's kind of... It's kind of helpful because it's a, it's allowed the filmmakers to get their... Um, the pipeline next year already looks 20% better than it did this year. That's We're still below where we need to be. But, and this is all part of that that game, it's all part of that journey that we're all on, I think. Yeah, absolutely. You see, I know I've taken a lot of your time up, but I'm gonna end with one question. We've talked a lot about the industry and the challenges that it's facing, and then some of the ways that VIEW is, is responding and overcoming those challenges. But bigger picture, what is it that gets you out of bed each morning and bouncing back to the cinema industry? What are the bigger picture positive elements that, that drive you? I've always felt really lucky 
um, to do what I do, if I'm honest. I When I came to, in, into the business um, 35 years ago, I never thought I would stay this long. And, and But it gets in your blood. And um, I think one of the great things about our business, I love the fact, I've always loved the fact it changes every week. You know, it goes from being led by a horror film to then being led by a, a Marvel blockbuster. Then it's um, it's it's an animated thing. It's a you've got school holidays. You've got it's a business that's in constant change all of the time, um, and I love that about it. I love love seeing a full cinema and a full audience. Um, and I know it's a corny thing to say, but there is nothing better when you're just walking around with, with the manager and looking at what's going on on a Friday night or a Saturday afternoon um, and people enjoying themselves. It's just absolutely wonderful. It really is. Um, and the great thing about cinema is it's it's fantastically democratic as well, which I love about it. And by that, I mean it appeals to every age group and every um, demographic. And, you know, sharing that experience with, you know, with everybody um, who's behaving themselves and enjoying the you know the the occasion that they're in in the screen is is wonderful. Um, so I I still love that about it. it still gives me a buzz. Um, I still like the fact that our managers get excited and when we have you know when you have a you have a great weekend that you weren't expecting. That's why Smile recently was so important because I can't remember the last time that a film went up on its second weekend and all credit you know to the marketing teams you know the distributor you know um for doing the baseball i thought that was genius and um and it's great when you see that engagement because it becomes it becomes part of the conversation that you hear in the office and you hear on the bus and the train sort of thing it becomes part of people's kind of life and everything and i um you know i, I love that about the industry the impact it has on people's lives i think um and we can all tell a story about the first film we saw um, and that film will be memorable because you saw it in a cinema. And that's there's not many industries that can say that they have that impact on people's lives, I think. So I feel really lucky to have been part of that. I think it's been absolutely brilliant. Well, Steve, thank you for your time today. I've really appreciated talking to you. We could go for another hour, or I could at least, um, trading stories. So I'm really grateful for your time. Thank you again. And, uh, you know, best of luck as you roll into the next financial year and uh, and look after the audiences coming back through the doors. Yeah, fingers crossed. Nice to talk to you, Matt. So Ryan, that ends my two-parter with Steve Nibbs. Uh, he is a terrific gentleman. He gave us a lot of time and, as you would expect, a lot of insights for somebody who's as experienced with here as he is and somebody who's spent as much time with a circuit as innovative as you. Why don't you tell us what's coming up this current weekend? It's a busy one. It is a busy one. We've got something for everyone. We've got The Fablemans, directed by Steven Spielberg, about his early life that is getting some Oscar buzz. Then we have Strange World from Disney. These are for kids. It's actually the first kids movie that we've had in seven weeks. So this, this might really bring out the crowds. That would be great. And then we have Devotion, which is really a Korean War action film coming from Columbia. Bones and All, United Artists, is bringing it out. This was a platform release for a few weeks. It sneaked on 54 screens for 120,000 and 24,000 per screen average, which is great. We'll see how that expands and does with audiences. And then the movie I think we're all going to be talking about in the weeks to come is how Netflix chose to release Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery on screens. And there's quite a few comparisons there compared to the original one. Yeah, absolutely.
and it's going to be on 600 screens versus 3,400 screens for the first one. Now, again, Netflix doesn't do this. This is really one of the first times they've gone pretty wide with a release like this. Uh, in over five days, the first one grossed 41.4 million. That is not going to happen on 600 screens. But you know, Regal has a midnight screening on, on November 22nd. And so we'll we'll kind of see how this goes. It's going to be a month until people can get it on on Netflix. So hopefully people are going to want to come out and see it uh, that saw it the first time. Yeah, and look, this will be interesting. You know, there there was the initial trial, which we're all going to go through. After that, there was the um, investor relations presentations where Ted Sarandos said, "This is a one-off. There's not going to be any more." But the world's changed. Um, the the whole focus on subscriptions at any cost has shifted to coming up with a sustainable streaming business. And of course, Netflix is in the black. Uh, they are the most successful, but you know we're seeing, as we said at the top of the show, Bob Iger coming in, trying to right the ship a little bit as well. So if, um, if there is more of a focus on, on profit, I think we've seen enough examples, and David Zaslov has, has sung from the rooftops, that a movie that starts in cinema generates greater profits. So it'll be interesting to see if, if this happens more often. I guess one of the things to call out, though, is that Knives Out was a successful theatrical bit of IP, and this is following it through. You know, we've talked about some of the, the Netflix movies and some of the other direct-to-stream movies, things like Red Notice and um, The Grey Man, which, you know, seem disposable. The fact that The Grey Man was knocked off the number one spot by a romantic comedy, a low-budget one at that eight days later, suggests how disposable they are. So I kind of wonder, is Glass Onion able to go back to the movies because it was established in the theatres? And will the others be able to make that shift in to establish themselves? What, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I don't know why any, any head of a corporation says, we're never doing this again. Say, hey, this is a test. We're going to see how it goes. Who knows? We might try this again. We just want to see how this works out. I I don't, yeah. So I, I think this could be a real success and they could have a really great per theater average. I would hope they do. Uh, the movie got great reviews and it feels like a film that needs to be seen in theaters. And, I, you know, I, I, I think movies like this belong on the big screen and, and they need to be given that chance, even if it is Netflix. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see just what information they make public. You know, Netflix isn't known for releasing a lot of data. Um, and in some ways, to me, box office is secondary to occupancy. Because if you're throttling this back to, you know, 600 screens, maximum of five showtimes per screen, it's got a natural ceiling on how much you can earn, as you were mentioning, compared to the first one. But if it's sitting at a multiple of, you know, two or something times average occupancy or out, out occupying Black Panther in its third weekend, that to me is more telling about what the upside potential is here. But who knows what we're going to see? We don't know what story we're going to see, right? They, if they have a good story, hopefully they'll release everything. If it's a not so great story, we might not hear much. So it'll be, uh, it'll be certainly the talk of the town on next Monday. Well, I think one thing we can say for sure is regardless of what it grosses, we'll be able to talk about who actually showed up and saw it. We can do the audience breakdown next week. We can do that, yes. So we'll take a look at that next week behind the screens. Hopefully Simon will be back from leave as well. And we might be able to take a look at some of the early numbers that are coming through from the Avatar pre-sales. And hopefully they're as big as uh, James Cameron has been apparently swearing at executives about. Uh, don't talk to me about the runtime. I'm going to bring you all the effing money. 
uh, was the quote that he has admitted to today. And if he lives up to that, um, I think we'll all be effing happy. Movio and Numero are two of the businesses within the Vista Group, the world leading provider of technology solutions to the global film industry. For more moviegoer insights, be sure to visit movio.co and follow Movio, Numero, and Vista Group on Twitter and LinkedIn. The Behind the Screens podcast is produced by Grace Furness and edited by Patrick Hanna.